Dear God, I thank you for each person here. I thank you for uh, your Holy Spirit and the work he does among us, how you guide us and direct us and give us different gifts. Lord, we just, we know that you desire what is best for us. Help us to accept your gifts. Help us to walk them out in holiness. Help us to point people to you with our lives, wherever we find ourselves. And I just ask your blessing on each person today. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And I would like, um, we're going to talk about singleness today, and I'd like to have Ryan and Linda join me up front, and I'm going to ask them a few questions. Uh, singleness is not something churches tend to talk a lot about, uh, tend to talk about marriage quite a bit, but uh, wanted to talk about that today. And so we have two individuals who graciously um, are willing to let us into their lives a little bit and are faces of singleness, okay? So, um, so Ryan's never been married, and Linda um, has been married and, and lost her uh, husband to death um, quite a while ago, and so we wanted to just talk to them and ask a few questions. So we'll begin with you, Ryan, and um, question number one is, what do you find difficult about being single? Um, I think that uh, that people are hardwired to pursue the, a relationship with other people. I think that scripture tells us that, you know, it's not good for man to be alone and that kind of informs that, that need um, to be loved, to be known. And I think, uh, you know, the, the connection that comes with that, that's something that is, um, you know, it, it leaves a sense that there's maybe another half a lot of times missing from somebody if you don't have that. Um, so if, if you don't, there's a loneliness that comes with, with that. And living with that can be, um, you know, a, a challenge. But I do think that, you know, relying on God and, uh, and just walking with him will eventually, you know, lead you to, a, to, to his plan for you, which is ultimately going to be much more edifying. And then another um, less uh, less apparent um, downside, I think that that I've noticed when I look at other people's relationships, um, is that you have a lot of opportunities for personal growth that um, it aren't necessarily present if it's just you going by yourself. Um, you may not have the inclination to grow in certain areas that uh, you you may feel a distinct catalyst for growth if you have somebody else who is. For instance, you know, riding you to go out and mow the lawn or something, <laughs> and you know, you gotta, you gotta get it in gear. Whereas, you know, you have to work a little bit harder to find those opportunities and force yourself to, you know, grow as a as a responsible adult. You know, if you're just by yourself. I can hear spouses now. This is a catalyst for growth, and then here comes the suggestion. Ryan said, "Don't, guys. Yeah, I'm sorry." Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Ryan. That was great. Um, <laughs> No, what do you find advantageous about being single? Um, the most standout, you know, obvious thing to me is that my personal, you know, uh, obligations for my resources like time and, and finances aren't um, predisposed towards uh, needing to care for a family um, or anything, you know, that nature. I've, I have, uh, in short, a lot more freedom. To, to make decisions without a, a lot of complex calculus entering into the equation about how that's going to impact, you know, significant relationships that exist in my life. Everybody's got family, obviously, like, you know, parents and things of that nature. But 
Um, there's you know no more important relationship than say a wife or a husband and children. Once they become involved in the situation, you're gonna um, your needs. I think especially as as a man would come second to making sure that you absolutely don't fail them under any circumstances and you give them the best life that you can. Um, and uh, you know not being in that situation, say if I want to switch jobs, if I want to you know move across the country, if I want to do something crazy with my life, you know, obviously, you know, we would hope in service to the Lord. Um, I don't have to, you know, to, to worry so much about that aspect. That seems like the most obvious on its face advantage um, to me. And it's something that I, you know, definitely hope that at least for this season of my life, I'm making uh, good on, on the opportunity. Okay. And so you're in your 30s. What What advice would you give to someone who's, say, 19 or 20, and just starting out kind of the single journey, whether it's a lifetime or a short time. We don't always know. That was a long time ago. Yeah, I'm going to be 36 in on uh, February 11th. And so if I was able to go back in time and talk to me, I'd, I'd probably a moot point. I know I probably wouldn't even listen to myself if I showed up in front of me. But if anyone was going to take my advice, I would say... Um, let God lead the way. I don't think that it's, um, you know, if you're if you're under the bizarre inclination that you would like to be single for the entirety of your life, then um, you know, don't uh, not, not to put too fine a point on it, but be totally married to that concept. Um, you you want to let God inform that, and obviously, most people I think are looking for that that relationship to reveal itself. And I would again say. Um, Definitely, if you if you see God put somebody in your life that is walking with Him, and you're going to be walking with Him too, uh, you know, obviously um, with with God, approach that with prayer and and a heart for obedience, and just you know that that might very well be the person that He's putting in that situation. But the truth of the matter is that all of us are on the single path until God changes that. He you know, there's only one way that we can. Um, you know, fruitfully engage in another person in some, you know, kind of a, an intimate long-term capacity, and that is, you know, through the pursuit of, of marriage. And um, you're, you, you can undertake that yourself and try to try to take the reins on that. If you have a intense desire for physical discomfort, I invite you to go, go down that path. Um, uh, but you know, if if I was if I was going to give advice to somebody, I would say don't. Let God do it. Let him put that person in, in, in your way and uh, trust in him. If it is long-term, if it does turn out that it's going to be you know, the long haul for, for you and God by yourselves, then um, just trust that he'll give you the strength to endure the difficulties that are attendant to that path. Um, and, and many, many great men of faith have, have walked that path and, and done so admirably and have, have been incredible testimonies for the kingdom, people that we all look up to. I um I, I guess in closing I'm a visual person, um and I had this conversation uh, with someone actually that I was uh, you know, potentially you know uh, dating at the, at the you know I was dating but you know it was you know feeling out for you know a, a godly relationship and what I ultimately ended up explaining to them was. Um, Picture we're looking at like a, a, a grid, like a mathematical grid. I know this approaching Valentine's Day, this is not the most romantic. <laughs> I'm like, 
I am a, uh, I'm a, I'm a ray on this grid. I'm a fixed point. I have a trajectory, and it's, you know, it, it has a, a destination that is defined as wherever obedience to God leads me. So I'm going to run in parallel to God, what he wants from me. If you're not doing this, if your destination doesn't match my destination, we may grow closer for a time, but eventually we will not. We will, you know, move away from one another, and that, you know... Uh, in, in less clinical terms, is is going to be painful. So you 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 want to establish that right up front. Okay, and then Linda, um, having experienced both marriage and singleness, what do you think are the struggles or challenges with each one? Just to give you a little history, uh, I was married when I was twenty five, almost twenty six, widowed just short of a month of our 30th wedding anniversary. And I've been widowed for 18 years and counting. So I think I've covered both of them fairly well. <laughs> um, unmarried, um, as Ryan mentioned, the, the probably uh, the biggest uh, giant in the room is loneliness. Not to be alone, that's not the problem. It's the loneliness of not having someone to talk to, to eat dinner with, to make plans with, uh, to face life with, the good and the bad. Um, however, if you're not in a compatible marriage, it can be even lonelier than singleness. Uh, I've watched too many of those marriages and and have had to think to myself, they would have been better going their separate ways, but it's their choice. Marriage is not for the faint of heart by any means. Um, you are taking two individuals and combining them into one You've got two backgrounds, two lifestyles, two ways of thinking, two different childhood traumas that you're combining into one. So there's going to be conflict. Just walk into it with your eyes open. <laughs> the secret to it is communication, to be able to talk to each other honestly, openly, to to express your fears, your hurts, your um, your ideas, your your desires, and to honestly be heard, uh, it, that is the that is the gift of marriage, and it's both a give and a take. It's not a fifty fifty. It's a hundred hundred. You have to give a hundred percent of yourself to each other. Um, if you don't, there even will be more serious problems. I think putting... Putting the, your other... Putting your partner's needs and desires above your own. If both of you do that, both of your needs will be met. 
What do you consider some of the advantages of both singleness and marriage? Just the opposite of what I just said. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, having having that someone to talk to, having and and hopefully someone that you can trust. Uh, trust is trust is huge. If if you cannot trust your partner or they cannot trust you, uh, there's not much left to build a marriage on. And and God created us as as uh, Ryan has said, and as you're going to hear, since I've already heard this pastor's sermon, uh, trust is is invaluable. Um, and I think I I don't think we realize how valuable it is until we lose it, and that that is sad when we lose that trust because that's something you can't ever get back. There's, you, you may regain a different trust, but the original trust, once it's lost, it's gone forever. Um, just, just the fact of having, having some, knowing that someone has your back, um, that you're not you're not traveling this road alone and that's not to say that the lord isn't with us because he is he's with every one of us that have accepted him and asked him to be lord of our lives uh i i like to explain it it's it's god's arms that are wrapped around me when my husband's arms are wrapped around me so it's a combination uh but it is it is a challenge by by all means. Okay. What advice would you give to a new widow or widower? I'd like to include the the divorcees in this in this window as well because they ex have experienced a loss, the loss of a marriage. And and I would say Acknowledge your loss. Don't don't be afraid of expressing your grief. Don't be afraid of uh, getting and uh, letting your emotions run their course. Uh, as we're learning in Delhi's try softer class, if you hold those emotions in, they will come back to harm you, both relationally and physically. So so acknowledging a loss. Uh, in marriage, well, regardless of what type of loss it is, if you have become one and you lose your partner, you have lost part of yourself. And and part of yourself has, has died. So express that loss and acknowledge it. There's no set time on how long that should be or shouldn't be. Every one of us is different. Um, I, I think probably for men, that's probably more of a challenge than oftentimes it is for women to express their feeling of loss. 
but it's it's just so vital. Scripture says to grieve with those that grieve. So there is a, there is, and in Proverbs, there is a time to grieve. So take that time. Uh, acknowledge where you are. Uh, I would say do not make any major decisions for that, at least that first year. Um, your emotions are too high. They're too involved. You need time to sort things out if if there has to be a major decision then call people in that you trust and surround yourself with wisdom and let them help you think clearly to make a good choice the best choice you can make but rely on other people at that point because you're not thinking clearly i guarantee you the best way i described it was i felt like i went into autopilot I just I just reacted to what I had to react to and that always isn't the right place the the right decision so so just be cautious allow your emotions to go where they will uh accept your accept your new position for however long God puts you there and know that he is with you he is walking with you he will get you through it and that there is a light at the ton at the end of the tunnel. Um, the loss will never go away. The loss you will always feel, but the pain from the loss will get less as time goes on. All right, let's say thank you. Appreciate it, guys. <clears throat> All right. So when you talk to single people, um, every culture kind of has some expectations. And maybe not, you know, not everybody follows the same path. But in our culture, you have a tendency that most people, you know, marry in their 20s sometime and, um, and they'll have some kids. And, then, and that's kind of the standard pathway. And so if you're single... It can be very painful if you wanted that, if that was the path you wanted to be on, and you feel like maybe you're being left behind or somebody's taking the next step or entering the next season. And so it's one of these real challenges. I do think that churches don't talk to singles much about um, that single life, and so that's why we kind of wanted to talk about this. And, and honestly, in the church culture, it can be, you can have odd moments. I was reading a book, uh, Krista Smith, and she talked about being, you know, she's in Christian circles, and here she is, she wanted to be married someday, and I think she married in her late 30s, so she did finally receive that, but um, she said, you know, I had along the way, I think it was five or six different men in the very first conversation she that they had with her tell her that the Lord had told them that they were going to get married. And she's like, that's just weird. Don't say things like that. You know, so it, it could be very interesting to, to walk this out. Now, the Apostle Paul, we're going to read a, a lengthy passage from him. So hang with me. But in Jewish culture, men were typically married by age 18, and so it would be surprising for Paul to have never married. 
Uh, he may have been a widower. That's one possibility, but he may not have married. All we know is that when he was an apostle, when he was a missionary traveling around the, the Mediterranean and writing his, you know, his contribution to the New Testament, he was single in that stretch. And so we don't know if he was always single or um, just had reached that. But um, so here we're going to hear from the single man who God used in a profound and powerful way. And so hang with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7 through 9, and then we're going to jump down to 25 through 40. I wish that all of you were as I am, which is meaning his singleness. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than burn with passion. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now one of the things you have to be careful here and he does this throughout this chapter, like earlier that I'm not reading. He'll say, so the Lord said this, um, the Lord didn't um, give a specific command, but I tell you, um, understand this is not just like me throwing out my opinion. This is an inspired apostle writing scripture. So there's still real weight to this. Um, and, and so when he talks about this, you know, we really should listen. Uh, because of the present crisis, now he puts it in context here. Verse 26, because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from um, such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. Now, that's not one you usually get at your wedding card, you know, that particular verse. And I want to spare you this. <laughs> He's very honest. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. So he's speaking about the second coming. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. So he's just saying live with some detachment live with some urgency is what he's uh, conveying to us. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong, and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So he wades into this, he talks about this, and he's 
just trying to help people in this very specific instance. Now, I think the first idea when we look at this particular passage is that singleness is a gift from God. Singleness is a gift from God. Marriage is a gift from God as well. We could say that. And God loves us and wants what is best for us. And so if you're single and you're wanting to be married, I think it helps if you pivot your thinking and view this as this is a gift from God, at least in this season of life. It may not be forever, but at least in this season of life. And we lean into that, and we have a posture of trust, a posture that, that God is for us, that he loves us, that he desires what is best for us. 1 Corinthians 7.7, 7, he says, I wish that you were all as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. So some have the gift of marriage, some have the gift of singleness. And I understand that some singles don't want the gift of singleness. And I, I get that. They feel like, well, if it's a gift, it's a gift from my Aunt Mabel of socks that I'm not excited about. But it really can, and Paul's going to get into this, be a beautiful gift, an amazing gift. In 1 Corinthians 7.38, it says from our passage that he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. So Paul does lift up singleness. He lifts up um, not marrying. And so... Your singleness, if you're single at this moment, is God's best for you right now. Now, why does Paul encourage singleness? Because most cultures, we see an encouragement towards marriage, sometimes even a real strong expectation of that. And um, so what are some of these practical advantages? Well, he gives us several. One is the present crisis. So he's talking about a specific instance, and I think that's helpful. It is not uncommon throughout human history, for Christians to face intense persecution. And the Apostle Paul and the early church, they dealt with intense persecution. They dealt with times where just being a Christian was dangerous. And so in 1 Corinthians 7.26, he's not real specific, but he said, because of this present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. I would like to believe, I mean, I don't, you don't claim, I don't think any of us should claim to know until we're in that kind of terrifying moment. I would like to believe that if I were in a setting where someone has a gun to my head and says, you will deny Jesus Christ, that I would not do it. I would like to believe I have that kind of courage and would stand strong. Knowing myself, I think that would be much harder, as hard as that is, if you have a gun to my children's head or my wife's head. Do you see what he's talking about? He's talking about life and death here. And so in this present crisis, he's saying there are advantages to being single. And just an example, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, um, God specifically told Jeremiah, who's known as the weeping prophet, because he had such a message of, honestly, doom and gloom for Israel. They had been so stiff-necked that... God was going to send, um, you know, enemies to overtake them, to drag them off into exile to Babylon. And so here he has this very unpopular message. He's literally going around the country and saying, surrender. And so, of course, no one likes Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is told by God specifically, do not take a wife. Because think about it. I mean, he, they threw him in a pit. 
Um, they tried to kill him. I mean, this was a dangerous assignment. And to have a wife and children would make that very, very difficult to go. And then there's just the practical things. Like in the midst of all of this, Jeremiah, at one point, the Lord tells him, I want you to do this prophetic act of hope. And so what he does is, I mean, you know, the, the armies are marching and Jeremiah decides that, because the Lord tells him, go buy a piece of property. Now, that's kind of a stupid investment, right? You're about to be conquered. Go buy a piece of property. Can you imagine having a conversation with Mrs. Jeremiah about this? I mean, on surveys, not all women, I know they're individuals, but on surveys, women tend to have high as a value security. And so you're going to take our money that might help us in exile, and we're going to buy property even though we're going to get dragged off. This doesn't make much sense, but it was a prophetic act of hope that God called Jeremiah to do. And so he was in this kind of a crisis situation, and God called him to singleness. I think of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran theologian. I, I love his books. And Diedrich Bonhoeffer was, um, he lived around World War II, and when it was ramping up in Europe, he was in the United States. And my understanding is he could have stayed in the United States and completely dodged the war. But he was German, and he decided that God's call in his life, the single man, was to go back to Germany, Nazi Germany, and lead the confessing church to fight against the Nazis within, from within Germany. Now, I can imagine the consternation the stress, the challenge of making a decision like that as a single man. But imagine trying to make that decision as a man who's married with children. But God called him in this present crisis to go back and fight Nazi Germany from the inside. He died in a death camp. But that was God's assignment for his life. And so in this present crisis, there are times when it is advantageous to be single. A second reason or advantage he gets, uh, gives us is the very difficulties of marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 28, Paul says, But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. It's kind of a funny verse to me. <laughs> um, not one that we tend to laminate and put in our Bibles or put up on refrigerators, that sort of thing. But the reality is marriage is difficult. It's challenging. It's probably harder than you thought it was going to be, those of you that are married. I'm not listening for any amens. I'm not asking you to raise hands. But it's probably more difficult than you thought. And one of the reasons is because in our culture, and I think really across cultures, people have a tendency to believe if I marry this person, this will make me happy. Or even you hear the phrase, this will complete me. And the reality is that marriage with the goal of happiness, that sh should not be the primary goal. I read a book years ago, and it just, uh, it really had a profound effect on me. Uh, Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. And he talked about that the purpose, the primary purpose of marriage is not to make us happy, but to make us holy. And happiness flows from holiness. There is nothing quite like marrying another person. Nothing.
nothing quite like joining together with another person and it's that iron sharpens iron um, response that happens. I liked Ryan's phrase, catalyst for growth, you know, in marriage. I may get that put on a t-shirt for my wife. She's a catalyst for my growth, right? And so there, there is a challenge to marriage. If you sat down with somebody and you had an in-depth conversation, you said, where have your deepest hurts come from? Who has hurt you the most? I suspect the top two answers, one, parents, even good parents hurt us, they make mistakes, they're not perfect, but the other answer you hear a lot is my spouse, because you let that person in, because there's the spiritual reality of the two becoming one, there's this deep connection, and with that comes vulnerability and the possibility of being wounded. It's one of the reasons why divorce hurts so much. The deep rejection that happens there. There are real difficulties in marriage. Now to give you kind of a radical example of this, John Wesley, who's known as one of the great leaders in the Christian faith, he and his brother Charles founded Methodism, the Methodist Church, and kind of flowing from that you see... um, charismatic, Pentecostal, holiness movements. I mean, he, he was a very instrumental figure. And his marriage, he married a woman named Molly. She was a wealthy widow. She had four children. And his biographers refer to their 30-year marriage as the 30-year war. Now, see, the main issue, at least according to his biographers, was this. John Wesley felt he had this call. And he felt like he was to travel. I mean, during their marriage, he traveled at least 25,000 miles on horseback, preached about 40,000 sermons. He wrote, he led. He was just a profound, had a profound impact on the kingdom of God. And yet, um, he believed that his marriage should not hold back his schedule at all, should not affect it at all. And so the first four years of marriage, Molly tried to go with him, but after four years of trying to keep up with him and she kept getting sick and then occasionally had angry mobs come after him and that was terrifying so she went home and stayed and he just kept up his schedule and she begged him to dial it back she begged him to you know to rest and spend more time with her and the kids and and it just became this really um instead of being you know a help to each other she became bitter and I think he did as well. And she would write critical letters about him to critics and to newspapers. She accused him of adultery, which he said was never true. Um, one minister talked about seeing them in a room together, and she actually attacked him and pulled some of his hair out. I mean, and he admitted to grabbing her by the shoulders and shaking her. I mean, it was a ugly, ugly marriage, and they lived apart And she was dead and buried before he was even notified. The relationship was that broken. Now that is an extreme version. But marriage is challenging and tough. A.W. Tozer, I don't know if you read him. He's an author that has had an effect on me. His marriage was tough. He loved to, same kind of stuff. He He loved his schedule. He loved to write and preach and travel and all these kind of things. Had a disdain for money. He would get his paycheck and he would give half of it back to the church. And his wife with the seven children at home would be just angry and frustrated. 
And after he died, somebody went to his wife and asked, you know, because he was known as kind of this great man of God, and asked her, said, what's it like? Because she had remarried to this man named Leonard Odom. And they asked her, they said, they said, Ada, what's it like to have been married to this great man of God and now married to somebody else? And she said very candidly, she said, I've never been happier in my life. She said, Aiden, who was A.W. Tozer, loved Jesus Christ, but Leonard loves me. Marriage is challenging. I think most of us would admit that marriage is harder than we thought it was going to be. You know, we watched one too many romantic comedy. And so Paul says, hey, marriage is tough. There's advantages to staying single. And I would say John Wesley, A.W. Tozer, probably would have been better if they were single. They probably should have grabbed the call of God and just gone with that and not tried to be married. A third idea that he gives us, the Apostle Paul says, the return of Christ. 1 Corinthians 7, 29 through 31, I'm not going to read it all, but he says this, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. And then he kind of gets into, you should live in kind of this detachment. You should live with some urgency. Um, you need to not be distracted because Christ is coming back. It fascinates me that the early church had this strong sense that Christ would return. And yet the American church that I've spent my whole life in, most of us kind of have this, you know, lackadaisical approach about the second coming. We don't tend to focus on it very much. We don't think about it that much. It's not a driver for us. I know our family one time went on a trip and and we left and we had a young woman who stayed and she was house sitting for us and we, I think we tried to communicate, but we ended up coming back one day early. Surprise, it was not good. Piles of dishes the whole time. And the reality is that we need to live in such a way that we are excited if Jesus Christ returns today. The time is short. And there's advantages to being single and being able to focus on the kingdom. Romans 13, 11 talks about, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. We need to be people who live for the eternal, for li who live for the return of Christ. I appreciate Anna in Luke chapter 2 who lived for the first coming of Jesus. I think she's a good example. This woman was a senior citizen by the time Jesus shows up. Um, she got to see Jesus when they brought him to the temple. They were going to do a dedication, dedicate him to the Lord. And here she is. She had been married, but was um, a widow and had spent decades praising God and worshiping and serving as a widow at the temple. And one of the things I appreciate about her is here she probably had seen maybe even thousands of couples bring their child to be dedicated, bring their child to the temple. And it's hard. You know, the scripture says we're supposed to mourn with those who mourn, and I think we do that fairly well. Sometimes it's hard to rejoice with those who rejoice, especially if they got something, if they received something that we wanted and we didn't get. 
because she was not just a widow, she never had children, which put her in a very precarious position in that culture. And so here she is holding this Messiah, holding baby Jesus, and she had never gotten to hold her own child. And yet she had longed for that. She celebrated that. She praised God for that. And I, I love that. How did she do it? I think we have a hint in her name. Anna means God's grace. And so the return of Christ is, if we think about that, that becomes one of the advantages of living a single life. Another idea that the Apostle Paul lifts up is the focus singleness offers us. There's a real focus here. Author Krista Smith talks about one time in a time of prayer, she was praying because she really wanted to be married. And she thought she'd be married at 20-ish. And here she was late 30s and it hadn't happened. And she said at one point, she said, I cried out to God and, and she said, I felt like he said to me, if you never get married, am I enough? And she said, my, I felt the weight of that question. If God never gave me the gift of marriage, is he enough? And she said, my answer was, you're not enough, but I want you to be. And I think that's honest. But there can be a focus with the single life where you focus your devotion and your attention on what God wants, not just what a spouse wants. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 12. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, so some that can't have children uh, because of birth defects. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. For instance, probably Daniel of the Old Testament dragged away in exile. And if you're around the king's wives, you're probably they probably castrate you and make you a eunuch. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Uh, the one who can accept this should accept it. So there are some people that because of the call of God in their life, they look at that call and they say, I should be single. I'm going to go to that dangerous place. I'm going to be a missionary to that people group that's hostile. I'm going to, like Bonhoeffer, go and fight the Nazis in Germany. And so sometimes having singleness helps us, enables us to have focus. John Stott, a great leader in the Church of England, remained single for his entire life. And when questioned about it, he talked about the ministry he'd been called to, which involved lots of travel and writing and speaking around the world. C.S. Lewis, who has affected many of us through the Narnia series, Mere Christianity, different books uh, that have had a profound impact on so many people, certainly in my life. C.S. Lewis was an older bachelor. He only married his wife um, for four years before she passed away. Most of his life was spent in singleness. Jesus is the ultimate example of this. He took on human flesh. He lived life on our terms. But because his mission for the Father was to die on the cross for us and to rise from the dead and to go around teaching and preaching and healing in the time that he was here, he never got married. He never had children because his calling, his mission was better served by singleness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 38, it says, So see, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. There are times when that singleness allows us to focus and offer God an undivided heart. 
1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 35 of our text. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world and how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided, and it goes on. There's something about that laser-like focus, and marriage pulls us off of that. Now, just imagine the calling of John the Baptist, okay? Here he is, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He goes, he lives in the wilderness. He preaches and prepares the people of God, the Jewish people, for the coming of Messiah. He lives on a diet of honey and locusts. Now imagine there's a Mrs. John the Baptist. How's that going to go? Locusts again, John? Really? Can you go get a real job? I mean, you could just picture the, the conversation. There's, there's power in singleness. There's that laser-like, undivided focus that's so important for some people in their calling. God wants a total loyalty. Back to Krista Smith, that, that author. I read her book on singleness this week, and I appreciated. She said a story in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis really helped her. It's a story that, to be honest, I don't love. It's in Genesis 22, and it's Abraham, and he and his wife have waited for all these years for their miracle child, Isaac. Here they are in their old age. They have this miracle child, and he starts to grow up, and God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac to me. And Abraham, remarkably, gets up, they head off on a three-day journey, and he is prepared to sacrifice Isaac. I mean, this boy who's a miracle, this boy through whom the promises of God are supposed to happen, that Abraham would be a father of nations. And Abraham's willing to do it. And when God sees the undivided loyalty to God, that Abraham would hold nothing back, not even his beloved miracle child, Isaac, and she said, as she read this story, she said, what's my Isaac? And for her, her Isaac was the dream of being married and being a mother. And she said, I had to surrender that. I had to offer God a posture of trust, that he knew what was best for me. And she said, as I surrendered that, I moved forward. And she said, it was years and she said, I did eventually get to get married. I did believe God gave me that gift eventually. But she was able to have that posture of surrender and allowed her to go forward in freedom. And when you have this focus to God, you can take risk that's hard to do if you have a spouse and children. I think of Mark chapter 12, verse 43 and 44. This is a, a widow, and Jesus watches her at the offering plate, calling his disciples to him. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. What a remarkable gift, and what a risk in an era and culture without Medicare, welfare, Social Security. So the single life offers us a unique ability to focus 
those who are called to that, those who receive that gift. And then the final idea is that there's beauty in community. We all long for connection. God is the ultimate connection. That's the vertical relationship, but there's these, we're wired for these horizontal relationships with other people to have connection. Loneliness is a real factor. Loneliness is a huge issue in our country, in our community. So many people feel alone. I saw a cartoon and, and there were like three people sitting at this funeral and one says to the other, I, I, I thought there'd be more people here. He had, you know, 5,000 Facebook friends. So many of us have relationships that are this deep. But there is beauty in community. God says back in Genesis of Adam that it was not good for man to be alone and he gave Eve and offered that gift of marriage. But not everyone receives that gift. But there is the gift of friendship. There is the gift of community. People long for it. You know, if you're my age, you may remember a show about a bar called Cheers and and in the song, it talks about you want to go where everybody knows your name. If you're a little younger, you might remember a sitcom, Friends, where they had a song, I'll Be There For You. Everybody wants relationship. Everybody wants connection, whether Christian or non-Christian. We have this holy longing for community. But the Apostle Paul and the other writers point to the people of God as being our family. The people of God being our community. In Psalm 68, David writes about that God makes a home for the lonely. He gives us people to connect with. I think of Jeremiah again. He was called to a pretty lonely task to be the guy running around saying, surrender to the enemy. We're all, you know, most are going to get dragged off in exile. And yet, he had others. He had a circle he had a community that came alongside of him. Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian slave who risked his life to save Jeremiah's life, pulled him out of a, like a well they had thrown him down in. Gedaliah, the governor of Judah, who would protect him at times. Barak, who um, served with Jeremiah for 20 years, forfeited his royal lineage and the privileges that he had to come alongside Jeremiah. When you look at the life of the Apostle Paul who's single, you see this deep relationship with Timothy who he poured into, who became like a son to him. Those that have counted it up, Paul lists in his books and in his uh, letters about 36 different people that were workers or companions or friends um, that came alongside of him. He built community even though he was single. He talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 and 13, Paul writes, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. So despite our differences, whatever they might be, racial differences, economic differences, educational differences. He puts us into this family of God, this body of Christ. And we have different roles to serve. I think of Jesus' good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and they became a base for him. You know, it doesn't appear that any of them were married. These siblings all lived together. And Mary 
would love to sit at Jesus' feet and soak in his teaching. Martha was the one that would run around and, and fix the meals. She'd get a little angry about it sometimes because Mary wasn't helping. And Lazarus, I mean, he's the ultimate example. He dies and Jesus raises him from the dead. They, I mean, they all had different roles in their relationship with Jesus, but each of them moved forward the kingdom. All different, but come together for one purpose. All different, but we come together for one body. Counselor Adam Young talks about the brain, and, and in our brains there's these differentiated parts, but the brain has these differentiated parts, but they have deep connections. And that, connect, that connectedness is wholeness and harmony, and he refers to it using the Bible word shalom. Peace. Having the adequate resources to deal with life as we walk out beautiful community together, having other people in your life that come alongside of you. I think of King David in the Old Testament who had deep friendships. One time he mentioned, he goes, I'd love to have a drink from my home well. And a couple of his mighty men risked their lives to go get him the drink. I mean, that's a friend. My friend's a bit tough. <laughs> I wouldn't expect something like that. David had deep friendships. Think about Jonathan. Jonathan would have been next in line to be king of Israel. You know, Saul was the first king. Culture would have said, hey, Jonathan's going to be the next king. And Jonathan was a good man. He was a righteous man. He was an honorable man. He probably would have been a very good king. But God picked David as the second king. And Jonathan, setting aside his own glory, honor, self-interest protected David. David built a circle of friendship. Paul built it. I appreciate Ruth in the Old Testament. Ruth, um, she had this mother-in-law, Naomi. And sometimes women struggle with their mother-in-laws. And she had this mother-in-law named Naomi, and Naomi was a Jew, and she'd come to Moab and and her two sons had married Moabite women. Ruth was one of them. And in the time they were there, they were like 10 years, um, Naomi's husband died and both her sons died. And, but there's these two daughter-in-laws. And they're going to go with her back to Bethlehem. And one, you know, Naomi said, don't, don't come with me. I, I can't provide for you. And one went back. But Ruth committed herself to Naomi. She offered that, that dedication to her. Which I think is amazing because I think Naomi was kind of difficult. She renamed herself in her bitterness, Mara. I mean, if you're in Bethlehem and you're throwing a birthday party, do you really want to invite bitterness over for the cake? I mean, I don't. But And Ruth offered this precious gift of focusing her attention and pouring into Naomi, providing for her. And God honored that. And ended up giving her a husband, putting her in among the ancestors of Jesus Christ himself, this Moabite woman who would have been viewed as a second-class citizen among the Jews. There is beauty in community. 
whatever your background, whatever your gifts, and God puts you in a family, the people of God, and you're not going to be best friends with everybody, but you can build those relationships in small groups. You can build those relationships and do life with others. You know, one of the burning issues in our culture today is the LGBTQ community. And the Christian faith says that that expression of sexuality is sinful, gets us yelled at and uh, called names, that sort of thing. But one of the best things we can do is be a community in which people who do struggle with same-sex attraction can find care and love and compassion. And we cannot condone that expression. We cannot condone those marriages or those relationships, but we can come alongside and love people. And in those deep relationships, there are those who have that attraction that have found wholeness and identity in Jesus Christ and have been able to walk out a life of celibacy and holiness among God's people because they have been offered the beauty of community. It's a precious gift. And what they're called to is singleness. That's the way they can walk it out. And I know that goes against the grain in our culture. But if you have heterosexual tendencies, if that's the direction you're drawn, God's message is the same. If he doesn't give you the gift of marriage, you're to walk that out in celibacy and honor and integrity. And so as we look at this topic that we probably don't visit very often, I just want you to think about the gift of singleness. This is a beautiful gift. And each of us, wherever we find ourselves, we are called, the big idea is to live with a single-minded devotion to God, working it out, walking it out with his people. Live with that single-minded devotion towards him. Walk it out with God's people. Build those relationships with those around you experience that beautiful community that God wants for each of us. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for each person here. I thank you for the gifts that you give, whether it's marriage or singleness. Lord, I thank you for this passage which reminds us that singleness can be a beautiful gift from you, a profound offering and a life that is meaningful and purpose-filled and brings you great glory. Lord, I pray for the single person here who's frustrated and lonely that they would find connection. That way they would see clarity in your call in their life. That you would lead them. And I pray that each of us, wherever we find ourselves, would offer you that posture of trust. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.